Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Today is the final episode of our special mini-season on Unsolved Mysteries Volume 2. We'll discuss Episode 6, Stolen Kids, with director Jessica Dimock. In 1989, two-year-old Christopher Dansby and 19-month-old Shane Walker were abducted from the same Harlem playground within months of each other. Police and locals were put on high alert, but no trace of the missing toddlers was ever found. Three decades later, their families still haven't given up hope. It's hard to know you got a child. And I didn't have the opportunity to see him grow up. You know, like turning 13, turning 14 years old as they change. I don't have any of that. And to have missed 30 years of his life, it's devastating. We never stop looking for you, Christopher. We never stop. We never stop loving you. We never stop looking for you. And we just hoping and praying that you're okay wherever you are. <laughs> A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire episode and then listen on. Now, before you hear my conversation with Jessica, take a listen to a discussion I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband, Kevin Flynn. We break down the episode and share our reactions to the real-life mystery behind it. Kevin, thanks for joining me to talk about Stolen Kids. I can't believe Volume 2 is over. I know. It's really going to leave a big unsolved mystery-shaped hole in our lives. (laughs) How have you enjoyed Volume 2? I, I, you know, there's a great variety of different kinds of things that we've talked about. You know, is that a murder? Are there ghosts? And this is a good one, missing kids. I know. And, you know, one of the things I think that people who are listening to this who are younger than we are might yeah. not realize is when you and I were growing up in the 80s, we thought there was a pretty decent chance we were going to get kidnapped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Rem- yeah, I remember a rumor around my school about... A guy with long hair, and uh, yeah, it was just, uh, we know that statistically that it's much more rare than it actually happens, but man, it's serious when it does happen. It is very rare. We didn't see stories like this, kids missing from Harlem playgrounds. I'm curious on your take on this story. I found it very heartbreaking. Yes. Yeah, I did too, because certainly one thinks that uh, when they're in a familiar place, like a playground, like a neighborhood playground where they know many of the people around and they've seen these kids that, you know, there's no reason to worry. And the idea that they live the rest of their lives sort of blaming themselves, I think is very sad. And, you know, it's obviously not the fault of uh, a parent when this happens. This is a crime that's committed against them and their child. There are so many cases in which I think that law enforcement in particular has been tempted to blame a parent or say a parent should have done something differently or could have done something differently. To me, neither one of these cases is that. This was a playground that they went to all the time, tons of witnesses around, the middle of the day, not particularly ominous situations. I mean, Allison was talking about how, you know, it was a very hot day. 
this is what they did. This is what everyone in the neighborhood did. You take your kid outside to the playground, you go to the store to get them a snack, and that is your afternoon. There's nothing about that that you could change and have a different outcome here, right? No, and it just seems like that there was something going on. There was somebody who went to that park that day with the intention of snatching a kid. Maybe it was somebody who had gone 10 times waiting for the opportunity. But when you look at the second kidnapping, you just can't say that it was an isolated incident. You know, it was somebody who had been, and I think continued to look at that playground. I would believe that it's somebody from the neighborhood, perhaps somebody who didn't stick out. Hmm. Because if there was somebody there, for lack of a better term, hunting for a child to steal, how do you get, as a criminal, that lucky that you pull up to a, a playground and you're there for ex, you know, for only as as much as it takes to to grab a kid. I'm very curious about all of the theories that kind of get floated in the episode. And there's a theory about it being a family member. Very often, these kinds of abductions are family members. It doesn't seem to pan out. There's a theory about it potentially being a predator, a serial predator of some kind, yeah. a killer or kidnapper. There's a theory about sort of the stolen baby for someone who can't have kids of their own, which is a very fantasy sort of kind of theory that I think a parent would really want to cling to. What do you think? Well, I think they want to believe that their child is alive someplace. And the only way that fits is that if they were taken by somebody who wanted them for that purpose. Right. As opposed to wanting to harm them. And it is rare, but it does happen. And what's interesting is is if you look at the victimology, who was targeted? Really young kids. Yeah. Usually, you know, the kids, which is unusual. Yeah, it just seems like the kids who are targeted are uh, in grade school or they're in that sort of, you know, six to twelve year old range where you can imagine, you know, what the uh, the intentions of the kidnapper are with that that child. It just doesn't seem to sort of fit where you'd have like an eighteen month old kid. You know, it's the same purient desire to have the child. As unusual as that would be, it tends to kind of fit the idea. That's why those kids were taken. Yeah. I don't know. So another rumor that comes up in the neighborhood, which, you know, certainly pricked my ears up, was this idea that, you know, we heard people say they were interviewed by the news at the time that they believe there was a kidnapping ring going on, that kids were being stolen for money. That almost seems like a like a fiction, right? I mean, do you think that was a rumor? Or do you think that there was a reason why people thought that might be the case? You know, kidnapping for money, I, I don't know if there's been any, has there been any documented instances of that kind of a, a ring in the U.S.? I mean, there certainly is know. trafficking in the U.S. We there know is. Yeah. Um, it, it's quite unusual. So I don't know. I just don't feel like they really came. It was an interesting rumor. And again, it would be the kind of thing that you would be hopeful that it meant that the child was still alive. But I don't know. That just seems a little far-fetched. So Allison's son, Christopher, yeah. is kidnapped ostensibly from this playground. Just three months later, Rosa, who we also meet in the episode, goes with her son, Shane, to the same playground. She's unaware that there had been a disappearance here because she kind of wasn't paying attention And when she gets there, two things happen. One, a man sits next to her on the bench. That gives her an odd feeling. Also, these two older kids don't just ask to play with her son, but after she says no, they insist on playing with her son. 
We hear later those kids were interviewed by the cops. They were cleared. But what did you make of that? Because as details go to me, that's the one that really pricked my ears. The kids? Yeah. Whether like, you know, Fagan invited them to bring him in. I don't, I, I think that Rosa had great memory for detail. So anything sort of out of place, she would have remembered and reported. Yeah, the kid, but I mean, you've taken kids to a playground. Mm. You know, other kids want to play with other kids. And so, you know, it's an attractive little child. And, you know, it wasn't like it was 16 year old kids, right? It's kids that are in grade school. Yeah, older, but they want to play. And also, you know, they're also not going to be watching them like a babysitter would. They'll run over to the, the jungle gym or the slide, and then that's and that's that. You know, they, they'll run off to, to something else. While this is premeditated and planned, a uh, kidnapping like this, it's also a crime of opportunity because you have to find the right moment to take the kid and get out in a way that no one's going to notice, hmm. right? And that happened twice in the same the same location. Do you think the fact that it happened in the same playground points to someone in the neighborhood or does it point to someone hunting in that neighborhood from outside uh either either but you know it'd have to be somebody who could blend in because if you're coming without a kid right i mean today there's no way you could get into a playground without a kid right i mean we know things today that not no way but certainly you'd be noticed you would be noticed right right? people would pick up on that again from what we've seen that it was a thorough aggressive search by the police immediately afterwards it wasn't like they came a day later and it's a big city. It isn't like they've never had uh, a case of a child that's wandered away or a lost child. But this was, I think they knew immediately this was different. And they covered as many blocks as they could. And they even, like, what, tore down a building hoping to find evidence. Yeah. evidence. Yeah. And, you know, in some of these, we kind of, like, uh, look at the cops and think that, man, they could have done something different in this unsolved mystery. I think while it's an, it was an unsuccessful investigation... You can't say they didn't make the effort mm. and that they didn't do the things that they knew how to, they've been trained to do in, in, in hopes of finding the kids. So one thing I'm going to push back on you about around them doing everything they could, I do think there may have been some blinders on the investigation with regard to Allison because they went to a parental abduction opportunity possibility. And then they also talked in the episode, and, and she, I think, brings it up because it was a big part of the investigation, not because we need to know, because I don't think it, it in, in any way makes her less of a mother who misses her child or that it, in any way it makes this her fault. But it does seem like the investigators focused on her drug use kind of as part of the investigation. And perhaps that puts some blinders on them to the possibility of it being a stranger abduction right away. What do you think? Yeah, you know, but also you don't leave any stone unturned, especially mm. in something like this. So the idea that it was somebody, you know, in her circle. That's something you, you have to look at. But I think more th- more and more of it just points to this was a stranger, um, especially because you have the second child. Mm. One thing I want to ask you about is the case of Carlina White that we hear about in the episode. In 1987, she was 19 days old. She was kidnapped from a hospital where she'd been taken for a fever yep. by a nurse, somebody who apparently wanted her as a child to raise on her own. And then as an adult, 23 years later... Living under a different name, she began to suspect that I'm not who I think I am. And then a paperwork issue comes up and kind of proves it. Yeah. She ends up being reunited with her family as an adult. That was incredible. What do you think of that part of the episode? Well, I think it was great that they included that to show that, yeah, that's a possibility. Now, what's I think really rare about that case 
is that she did live um, a full life with her, I don't want to say new family. Adoptive, adoptive family. family. I don't want to say her that either. Cat, yeah. Yeah. Her, her family. But the idea that people would go and snatch an infant is not isolated, and which is why if you go today to a maternity ward, it's locked. Right. Right? And they have special codes. I know at my dad's hospital when he worked there, there was code pink, which meant lock down the hospital, there's a baby missing. It is a real thing that happens. So there are people that, not for what we would call traditionally criminal reasons, want to have a child that, you know, snatch a child that young. It's more of a mental health kind of thing. They want to fill that, you know, child hole in their heart. That does happen. So is it unusual that if that were the kind of person involved in this, that they would do that at a playground? Maybe. Mm. I mean, not all of us can, you know, get a nurse's outfit and sneak into a hospital. It's my hope that the answer to this unsolved mystery is something more like that, other than these children have been killed and we just haven't found them. Yeah, I hope so, too. I mean, we have so much at our disposal today that we didn't have in 1989, genetic genealogy, and, of course, these amazing age progression drawings that we see they make at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They're really, truly incredible, the work that they do there. And then, of course, Unsolved Mysteries. This case is now on Unsolved Mysteries. So don't you think, Kevin, if they're out there, this might be the thing that reunites them with their families? Yeah, I certainly hope that people look at those and say, you know, that looks like so-and-so from my high school or uh, the kid on, you know, the baseball team or whatever. You know, you just you just don't know about these tips. We've seen this from other Unsolved Mysteries from Netflix that they get out there and they do generate tips, and hopefully there's some quality tips that could come from this. Well, Kevin, it's been a pleasure talking with you, my favorite person to watch Netflix with, about Volume 2 of Unsolved Mysteries. Who do I got to call to get them to do Volume 3? I don't know. You got a phone number? Let's get on it. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks again to Kevin Flynn for joining me. You are my favorite person to watch Netflix with. Kevin's an Emmy Award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author and co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts the podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. Now, here's my interview with director Jessica Dimock. Jessica, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, I am a little bit familiar with your work. I just saw on your resume that you co-directed one of my all-time favorite Netflix documentaries, Flint Town. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about your history of filmmaking. Um, What led you to Unsolved Mysteries? And and yes, you can talk a little bit about Flint Town if you want. I can't talk enough about that documentary. Everyone should see it. Oh, that makes me so happy. So I, my background is in photojournalism and documentary photography. Uh, I've been doing that type of work for about 15 years. And um, I've just spent, you know, a lot, a lot of time kind of being out in the real world with real people and, and trying to kind of translate that into visual stories. And I transitioned into filmmaking, um, I don't know, maybe seven years ago or so. I haven't left photography, but I did find after a long time of making images and spending time with people that I was really missing their voice. And I, I was I was trying to kind of find other ways to make them more present in the work. And so that's kind of what led me to making documentaries. Hmm. And what about Unsolved Mysteries? Were you a fan of the original series? How did you come to work on, on this season of the series? Yeah, so I'm a 
I mean, I'm a huge true crime lover. Um, I hadn't really thought about making it so much as just I do love consuming it. Like my ideal day off would be to just like lie in bed and watch forensic files for way too many hours. <laughs> um, and that's that's been, you know, kind of my like go-to happy place for a long time. And so when I found out that they were doing a reboot of Unsolved Mysteries and that they were going to kind of bring in all of the the types of things that I think would make me as a director excited to work on it, it felt like a really great opportunity. So, you know, like still holding on to these really, truly unbelievable stories, which I think is what I find so compelling about true crime, but then also being able to do it in a much more like heightened and emotional way, not relying on kind of like actors to reenact moments, but instead try to kind of create a landscape where people feel the emotions of what a situation might be like a little bit more. Um, and so that was all really exciting to me. And so when I started talking to these folks and, and the timing worked out, I, w- I was really thrilled. Yeah. And this episode, I think, is really well suited to something you do really well, which is really just to, you know, in interviews with people talking about their experiences and even just looking at them, you know, just as they're composed, sitting in a shot, waiting to talk, really getting a sense of how a story affected them. I'm wondering about what the experience was like. You were at the scene of the of these disappearances, you relived the tragedy with the two boys' mothers, Allison and Rosa. Can you just talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, you know, so I I've done hard stories and have like, you know, documented things that are on the harder side of history for for a while now. And and so that that's not necessarily new territory for me, but this there was like a, a new level of it really being hard that I hadn't quite experienced. I, I had been prepping on this story. I'd been researching and like, you know, for weeks and weeks, just like immersing myself as in as much about the cases as I possibly could. Um, but I hadn't really made an emotional connection yet with the idea of of motherhood in it. And when they walked mm. in, I like immediately just felt so punched in the gut. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Um, and mm-hmm. and that was my first experience with them. I mean, we had chatted a little bit on the phone, but basically meeting them and then doing these really intense interviews was, was kind of our first day together. I bawled. Um, I like, you know, really was trying very hard to keep it together, but I, I found it really difficult. But it also kind of set the tone, which was that you know, from that day forward, I, I just felt like the emotional experience of what these women have gone through had to kind of inform everything. And so um, mm-hmm. I really like it was it was a very, very, very hard shoot day. I remember crying there at the set. I cried a lot in the car ride home. I cried a lot when I got home. Uh, I have a kid that's the same age as the two boys when they went missing. And so it was very hard, but it, it also it felt like it really informed kind of what I wanted this to be like, which is, you know, not that it was a nonstop cry fest, but that like the anxiety and the protectiveness of motherhood and not knowing where your children are and not being able to do anything about it and like how utterly frantic and destroyed that would make anyone um, really felt like it was super important to keep front and center. Yeah. One of the things I kept thinking about, I know that these uh, disappearances took place in 1989. You know, I grew up in the 80s, and 
the theme of, of missing and abducted children was so prevalent everywhere in the 1980s. I mean, I really think it would surprise people who were born later and who, who weren't, you know, really conscious of what was going on in that time or maybe weren't born yet, how much kidnapped kids, the stories of kidnapped kids were really front and center all the time. You know, you couldn't buy a carton of milk without there being a picture of a, a missing kid on it. You know, you had stories like Jacob Wetterling and uh, the movie Adam and sort of it was just really infused throughout the culture. Yet this is a story that took place in a very populous area in Harlem. And there really does seem to be a disparity in the way the stories of missing black kids uh, were told at the time versus missing white kids. And and you touch on that a little bit in the episode. And I think in the interview with Allison in particular, you know, we hear from law enforcement from her that kind of the credibility of her child being missing, her story was questioned a little bit because she had been using drugs. Yeah. Did you feel that when you were telling the story, like this was a story that was missed that wasn't told well back when it happened? You know, I did. I... I... Same as you, I, I so remember um, growing up in the '80s and the milk cartons, and you know, doing research for this for this story. I started kind of looking through um, a lot of archival footage of those bits that would be on TV, like it's eleven o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Um, and mm. and there's so many different iterations of them. You know, like famous people, musicians. Like it was, it was just like a very common thing. Um, and yeah, I think I think black children were a big blind spot in that era and in that moment. All of this is kind of being relayed to me from Allison, as well as her family, as well as, you know, some of the people in the community at the time. And I do feel like there was um, there was judgment and there was stigma attached to her because of her drug use and that there were mm. questions and rumors and theories. And, you know, it doesn't take much. I'm not I'm certainly not saying that the police ever, you know, thought that that was a really credible theory or that the police were convinced that she had sold her child for drug money, but I think, you know, even your community, like your fellow community members, um if they start to feel that way, I think it it shifts the investigation. It shifts like how seriously people are searching their memories for, wait, did I see this thing on that one day? And that was a little, like, I just think it has a, a really large effect. And I, I really wonder, had um, had that stigma not been attached to her, um, A, if her kid would have been found, although, you know, I, I believe that everyone was doing everything that they could, but also, like, would there have been another child taken from the same location? Because of right. the circumstances of Allison's life and her drug use, I think that there was a feeling that you might be able to get away with it again um, because there was questions and doubt and like, you know, maybe she was involved and, and uh, like sowing that type of doubt maybe was just enough, provided enough room for someone to come in and repeat the offense. Right. I mean, it really was a terrifying crime because... You know, of course, we're assuming it's a crime. We, you know, I, I think it, the the assumption, of course, is that these kids were abducted. I think it's a fair assumption to make, but it's terrifying to think about going with your child to a park in broad daylight with a family member in front of lots and lots of witnesses. You know that something like this could happen. I'm curious about what we can know about how thorough the police investigation was in trying to find these boys, especially you know that day, the days of their disappearances. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we 
talk to law enforcement and, and you see it in the episode and and I fully believe what Ken Lindahl uh, the retired detective says is true, which is that like when when kids go missing, it's a it's a whole nother level of kind of all hands on deck and everyone doing what they can. But I th- I think to be there at the MLK Towers and to see just the scale of like how large a search needed to be. I mean, it's one thing to get abducted from you know a mall or a parking lot or a smaller community, but New York City in the 80s, in these towers that there are 10 of the towers, there are 10 floors each, and there's at least 10 apartments per floor. It's just, a, and and they're not necessarily single occupants. You know, it's like sometimes you've got families of three or four or five easily in each apartment. And so you, so you start doing the math of how many doors needed to be knocked on and like, how do you do that quickly? And how do you do that thoroughly? Um, you know, this is, before cell phones, so you can't track someone down. You, like, if they're not there, you have to come back. Do you always come back to every single door? You know, it's just, I think the scale of it seems really daunting. And so in the best of circumstances, I really wonder how you conduct a very thorough investigation very quickly. And then you add in all of these other things. And I, I, I think it's hard to imagine that, like, there couldn't have been mistakes along the way or there couldn't have been pockets or or things that were missed. Now, you do point this out in the documentary that, you know, those towers, it really is like a little mini city that they tried to search and, you know, knock on all those doors. I mean, it's a it's a sprawling complex of buildings, lots and lots of people. I was curious, was the park where the kids went missing from, was it within the complex of the towers or was it outside the complex it's, of the towers? It's within the complex of the towers. So um, there's and there's actually a few of them. So in a lot of these kind of housing projects in New York City, they have um, some playgrounds within the kind of boundaries of it. And so this was a playground that was right there on the kind of, I want to say, southeast corner. It was interesting to me that the police decided to focus their search on the complex itself. Uh, it does feel like a blind spot to assume, you know, that either he had, you know, maybe run away into one of those buildings or been taken by someone in one of those buildings. And I, it, it really struck me hearing later that Rosa had no idea that a child had been abducted from that playground in the complex. They did the search of the complex, but they, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of publicizing of the disappearance in the aftermath in the complex, a lot of warning of other parents, for instance, of, you know, watch your kids. A child went missing from this playground in your complex. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a few things that might play into that. I think one is that Rosa had been away when it happened. I think she had she'd taken them somewhere. They had gone on a little trip. Um, Rosa was also really trying to kind of stay on the straight and narrow. There was a lot of drugs in that area in the 80s. There was a lot of like criminal activity and, and she was really not involved in any of that. And I think she was really trying to kind of like keep her head down and keep to herself. Mm. So ironically, that determination um, might have been one of the things that maybe made her a little bit more more vulnerable because she just might not have been like chatting and gossiping as much. She was really trying to kind of stick to herself. She would say that like she would bring her son down and it would just be the two of them and she wouldn't really talk to other people. And um, But I think also there must have been a little bit of a, a lack of real publicity because 
I mean, she talks about, like, I never would have taken my kid there. She was a protective mom. That's the first time I ever let my son play with anybody, because I didn't usually let him play with no kids, no nobody, you know. It was only just me and him. And that was the first time I did it, and I said, oh, Lord, the first time I did it, I make a mistake. She held on to her son and and was very kind of mama bear about it. And so, you know, I have to right. kind of think that maybe there weren't the signs or it, it wasn't also kind of staying relevant, like it had come and gone and there was some like acceptance or, or just like, well, you know, that happened, um, but not really like a fear that other people might be vulnerable. Well, that came through, you know, her kind of mama bearness when she talks about the two kids who kind of insisted on playing with her son that she felt reticent to allow them to do so. And I don't blame her. I would have had the same reaction. Doesn't it seem, you know, I know that in the episode we hear that the kids were interviewed and, you know, that their potential involvement was kind of written off. But doesn't it seem like a a strange detail that she would remember so clearly these two kids like really insisting on playing with her basically baby son uh, in this playground. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard too because I, I have the same feeling. And then at the same time, I also think had something so horrible happened to me 30 years ago, like the one or two details that I could remember might loom very large. And so You know, from the sounds of it, I agree with you. I keep wanting to be like, but wait, like, where are they now? Can we talk to them again? It it sounds as though um, they were brought in for questioning and their their parents were brought in and that it checks out and it was just kind of that it was innocent. Uh, But I agree. I mean, I that one that detail does kind of continue to bother me. And I, I wish that it was possible to, you know, find out more and talk to whoever was involved um because there was also a man that sat down with her at the same time and you know she felt she there was something in her gut saying like that she felt like she was being distracted Hmm. is it tricky to you know learn more about those details because this is an unsolved case i mean i know that there's a difference you know between the information police will give a journalist uh, when a case is closed and there, it's been adjudicated versus when it's still open and unsolved. So I suspect you weren't able to chase down the kinds of leads that you would have been able to, you know, if, you know, this had been a conviction that you were looking reexamining, for instance, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest obstacle, you know, in the research really felt like the just the amount of time that it passed, like, you know, people that were involved had, had passed away, um, you know, People that were the like lead detectives are not necessarily there anymore. I mean, it's just like in this one, it's really about the amount of time. I think the amount of time is really the biggest obstacle because it's it's just hard to get people that can speak to things directly instead of being able to talk to, you know, things that they have heard or that they have looked up in case files and things like that. The episode does put forward, you know, through the people you talk to, several theories about potential suspects, how and why these toddlers could have been abducted. You know, at one point, someone says it could have been a relative, it could have been a serial kidnapper or killer. One of the rumors that really popped out at me, mostly because it seems that so many people in the community believed it, was this idea of a a baby-selling ring 
it sounds like the kind of thing that would take hold in a community that had been afflicted and and really blossom as, you know, a, a sort of fantastical story. But I'm wondering why. I mean, why was this a story that people hung on to and believed so strongly? That's a great question. I think that nothing else kind of makes sense. And gossip is a really powerful uh, tool. And it doesn't take much for you know, one person to say something and then someone else to say something. And and in the absence of anything concrete, you know, it seems like that was just a a theory that kind of took hold. There doesn't really seem to be any evidence of that. Um, I think, I mean, if it was a baby selling ring, it was, you know, a ring of two. Um, It doesn't seem like Mm. there were others that completely mirrored it um, or that there were other situations right in the area. It doesn't really seem like it's that there's anything else related to it. One of the other theories that's sort of put forth is this idea of a kidnapper who's motivated by, you know, wanting to have a child of their own or not being able to have a child of their own. And I know that you actually illustrate a case in the episode where this happens, and it's extraordinary. This adult woman uh, discovers that she's not who she's been told she was and reunites with her original family. But it also strikes me as a very, very tragic and sad almost like a fairy tale ending that I can imagine, you know, being in Rose and Alice's situation and really desperately hoping that that's the case because it does open this door that it it wasn't a predator. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I will say that, you know, certainly this is not my area of expertise, but I, I do defer to some of the experts that we spoke to. When we chatted with the center, um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, of course, no one will know until this is solved. But one of the feelings was that, you know, these boys were young. Two-year-olds are are rarely taken for kind of like sexual and pedophile purposes. And so, you know, there wasn't a body found. So like if these kids were taken just to be murdered – where did they go and where were they put? I mean, it's mm. as someone who watches a lot of true crime, it's hard to hide bodies. You know, it's like it takes it takes a lot of space. You got like you can find mines in Utah and things like that. But like in New York City, where where are you going to hide a body? How do you hide both so successfully? One is left to to think that it fits a pattern of like when children of around this age get taken, this this could be one of the motivating factors. And so, you know, maybe I've drank the Kool-Aid, but there's part of me that really believes that that's possible. I think that there's a really, I I really feel like there's a chance that these boys or these men now are out there and they have no idea. I mean, they just would have no idea. We should mention that those uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they go by the nickname NICMIC. Um, those age progression drawings that they do and those reconstruction drawings that they do are eerily accurate. The technology and the artistry behind those, it's, it's really something to see. And I wonder if, you know, in putting these age progressions on the episode, you know, is part of you hoping that somebody watches this episode and says, I know him or that is me. I mean, is that is that kind of getting in front of this huge audience what the hope is? Oh, here? absolutely. I mean, I, you know, again, I, I know that it's unlikely a lot of time has gone by and, and a lot of things would have to kind of like line up correctly. But I, yeah, that's my ultimate hope that someone would say, I know this person or someone would say that's me or someone would 
you know, think that kind of looks like me and the circumstances of my life in this one area have never been clear. My mom has always had this kind of weird story that I haven't, you know, dug into enough. I mean, so, um, yeah. And, and when you think about kind of the, the legacy of a show like Unsolved Mysteries, where it used to come out, you know, one time at a certain time of day, and you had to like be in front of your television and watching it right then, versus now when it's just on this platform and, and the reach is enormous and people can pause or go back or, you know, rewa- like all of the, all of these kind of watching um, styles that didn't exist in the first iteration of the show. I think, you know, it does give me hope that maybe someone might know something. That, that's a really good point. I mean, when Unsolved Mysteries originally aired, you'd have to tape it on your VCR in order to watch yeah. it again. I mean, yeah. there was an excellent chance that the person you were targeting who might know something just didn't see the show. Right. Um, and that's just so not the case anymore. That's a really, really interesting point. I'm curious about the fact that these two abductions, we'll just call them abductions, happened so closely together in the same location. The fact that they would happen in the same location, it must have been in some ways embarrassing or at least very difficult for law enforcement to absorb that, right? Yeah. You know, I didn't get the sense that there was embarrassment on the part of law enforcement. I definitely got the sense that they took things much more seriously from that point on. And I I think it was really scary for everyone um, you know, I know from talking to Nekmek that abductions happening in the same place is unheard of. It's not like mm-hmm. just rare or like doesn't happen a lot. Like I believe that the people that we've spoken to over there don't recall another case like this. Um, it just doesn't happen. And you can, for a lot of good re- – like you can understand why even if you put your head in the mindset of someone who might do such a thing, like it seems stupid to do it in the same place, except if you feel like you kind of got away with it and and you maybe even yeah. learned something. And I know earlier we were talking about, you know, if it was a blind spot to think that someone from the towers could have done it versus just like anyone from the street who could have just quickly dodged away. I think the one thing that makes, that could lead towards thinking it's someone in the towers is that because these playgrounds are kind of right in there in the center of them, you could easily watch someone. So you could kind of learn someone's behavior. I mean, I'd have to assume that someone who decides to abduct a child doesn't just wake up that Monday morning or that Thursday or whatever, you know, and say, today I'm going to I'm gonna do it, and then they just go ahead and do it. I mean, I would assume that with like a lot of criminal activity, you kind of plot and plan. And so you know, having the cover of this kind of community playground and maybe even being able to watch from a window um, because you can, from a lot of these buildings, you can look right down onto the playground or being able to like perch right across the street on a bench right outside of your own place and watch uh, in a way that's not suspicious. Like, you know, why does this one person keep coming to this one spot every day? Well, if you live there, that's not weird. And so Mm. that's a thing that does make me believe that there's some kind of connection to the towers, whether someone lived there themselves or if they they knew of, you know, other people and and maybe were introduced to the towers just by visiting people that they know. But that kind of makes me feel like there's possibility there. Have you weighed the possibility at all in making this film that the two abductions were not related, that this was just a terrible coincidence? Uh, That's a really good question. I haven't. I'm convinced that they're related. 
uh, maybe I really have like the horse blinders on, but I just, you know, at the end of the day, even in the 80s, even when like kidnappings were front and center, it's still a really rare thing. I mean, Mm. you know, like most people don't know anyone who is even connected to someone who's had a child kidnapped. I mean, most people, if you did the kind of web, might know someone who knows someone who was murdered or might know so. And, you know, certainly in, in certain communities versus others, like you might get a lot closer to violence or, but like child kidnapping is just so, it's still, a, thank God, it's still a really rare thing. There are a lot of missing kids out there, but like it's it's a rare thing. It does not happen all of the time. And so- same age kids, same day of the week, same place, kids that were living with their mothers. And like, it just all seems, it just seems way, way too um, uniform. It just seems, it, it seems too intentional. Um, yeah, I just, I can't imagine that it, that they're not connected. What do you think the central mystery is in this story? I mean, there are a lot of questions that you raise in the episode. You know, who could have taken the boys? Are they still alive? You know, if so, where are they now? Um, but is there a central question that you really hope to get to in telling the story? I mean, I think that the biggest question for for me is why? I mean, just why someone... And, and of course, with lots of crime, that's a question. Um you know, but you like, you watch enough of this stuff and there are some patterns that emerge, you know, like murder is crazy and awful. But like, when you get to the why, like, turns out a a lot of husbands murder their wives, or a lot of people kill people for money. Like there are kind of some like, bigger themes that start to emerge. And I, with stealing a child, I think the biggest unsolved part for me is just like, why, why would someone do this? Um, if if it was to raise the child as their own, it's unbearably selfish. And I wonder if if something like that happened and, and you develop more of a personification of, of being a mother, if, if you come to regret that in some ways. Um, because once you kind of see the bond that you have with, with a child that you've stolen, you kind of imagine then what it must have done to someone else to have that taken away. Um, if it's violent, like, like who wants to hurt it? Who wants to hurt a two-year-old? Like they're designed so that we won't hurt them because otherwise we would hurt them because they're really annoying and they cry all the time and they're like (laughs) naggy and they're like covered in snot. But like, they're so, they're like evolutionarily designed so that we won't hurt them because they're, there's just like nothing more precious and, and and vulnerable. And so you're just like, all of your instincts want to go towards. So it's, that's to me is just the big, like, why? Why? Do you know if Allison and Rosa are pursuing any other methods of investigation, like genetic genealogy or social media sleuthing? Did they talk to you about any of that? Yeah, so they've both submitted DNA for, you know, large databases and, and no hits so far, as far as I'm aware. But you know, that could always change. Um, so that's the one thing that I know that's kind of been a more recent development, that they've both submitted DNA profiles um, to see if there's any kind of match or hit out there. I, I do want to note, you know, some of the research that I've done and projects that I've worked on, one of the problems with these genetic genealogy databases, like GEDmatch, for instance, is that it's largely the DNA information of 
Western European uh, people, uh, white people, white Americans. Um, so there is kind of a need uh, for more people in minority communities to submit DNA to these databases in order to help solve these crimes. Because one of the things that's interesting is you may not be connected in any way, yet you could provide the link between two people who you've never met and never will meet. That's how genetic genealogy works. It's very, very interesting and how quickly it's kind of evolving. One question I have for you, just to wrap it up, I'm wondering how hopeful you are that Christopher and Shane, that their mystery will be solved by this episode going out in the world. Are you hopeful that they're alive and well somewhere and that they may be reunited with their mothers or that their mothers just might get some closure somehow? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I like nothing, nothing, nothing would be more joyful, satisfying, you know, like I just, I, I really feel for them. I can't, I can't imagine, um, the, the hole that's there. I mean, Allison had another son, um, and has grandchildren and, and was able to also really turn her life around. And I think, um, she's got this kind of family that she's, waiting for Christopher to come home to. And, and so that I, I'm really hopeful that like all of those people can be reunited and, and Rose is kind of the opposite. Rosa didn't have another kid and, and she doesn't have grandchildren. And that was kind of her, her one experience of motherhood. And I want her to be reconnected. I hope we wake up and see the light, see, you know, come and find me, you know, I would hug him and kiss him and say, let's go on a vacation. Let's get away. Let's go away just to be with yourself, you know. Spend time together, you know. We love, you know I miss a lot years, so. I'm hopeful. I realize the chances are really, really, really small. But, you know, it's crazier things have happened. So I am hopeful. Well, the Unsolved Mysteries episode is called Stolen Kids. Jessica Dimock, it's heartbreaking, beautiful episode to watch. Thank you so much for making it, and thanks for talking to me about it. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. We have reached the end of this week's episode. Many thanks again to our guest, Jessica Dimock. Fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. If you or someone you know has information on the whereabouts of Christopher Dansby, Shane Walker, or any of the other missing children featured in the episode, go to unsolved.com to share your story or to learn more about the hundreds of other mysteries covered by the series. For more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Trial 4. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>